0: sometimes we get lost in doing experiments that we deviate from the major focus and it gets hard for people to you know like wrap up the work and to communicate it to a point where it it is itself uh, self existing in itself so i would say not to overkill if something is not working we have to find quickly move into different ways of figuring it out together so that it can be written quickly and communicated
1: Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm Fini and alongside me is David. And so for today's episode, we're diving into all things perovskites, which is a super interesting discussion topic, specifically for me, because it kind of brings me back to my research from freshman and sophomore year at Georgia Tech, where there was a battery research group um, with Dr. Gleb Yushin, but we did, or specifically, I focused on kind of a anti-perovskite material. I think it was lithium hydroxychloride, and how that can be potentially used in battery application. And so that just kind of coincides with the topic of today's discussion because we discussed the various applications of perovskite materials. It's a very interesting structure. Kind of Akash talks about the ABX3 structure the formula and all the properties it enables and therefore kind of the most well known application is solar cells so we we have that discussion of you know perovskite solar cells versus the current silicon solar cells but then we also talk about a variety of other potential applications so david i wanted to see if any of those kind of were your favorite points of discussion or um what was a highlight for you i really enjoyed Talking about the scalability and application. And so in that,
2: we already have the silicon solar cells, which we see throughout the day, de- like throughout our lives, the, the most common. But he really talked about how proboscides could be used in a different manner while still using silicon. So the combination of two technologies to meet a need. So in this way, they are much thinner than the silicon cells and they can be embedded. Uh, as they're soluble. So it's much easier to laminate, embed in other materials, to create combinations of infrastructure in these solar cells. So I I just thought that was super interesting about how do we continue to scale to make this green energy even more accessible and uh, more prevalent without taking up any more space? Because we know that space is such a valuable thing. So I thought that was really interesting to hear how there's a lot of benefits of how thin it can be like up towards like hundreds of nanometers. So very, very thin. And that can be used in like our like Apple Watches. It could use V-Power, those types of technologies Uh, because it's so thin, it could just be on the technology itself. And so I thought that was all very fascinating to hear about how we can still use both technologies, but they can meet different needs and they can be used together as a it will take a lot to be able to make something that can solve all of our problems with energy production in a clean manner. So that was
1: my favorite part of the conversation. Yeah, and for me, it was really cool to see just like, he was talking about the time frame, like the 60 to 70 years that Silicon had to optimize its manufacturing process and I believe they're around 26% in terms of their efficiency. And he just touched on how with the perovskite material class, it's jumped up from like 3.8% to now 25.4% since just 2009, you know, less than 15 years. So it's really cool to see that rapid innovation and progress being made in this class. And it seems like there's a lot of potential here that has yet to be uncovered. And another really interesting conversation we had was Akash is a PhD candidate at Duke and so he has a lot of experience with the publication process, not just writing, but also reviewing for various journals. So for any student, graduate student, undergrad student who's writing writing papers, uh, we have really good. Or he just shares a lot of advice towards the end of the episode to to look out for in terms of how do you uh, get your message across and improve the quality of your scientific writing and, and the impact, and make sure that you can publish papers as frequently as you'd like so there's a lot that we talk about in this discussion so without further ado let's get into it hey everyone welcome to the it's material world podcast so for this episode i'm happy to introduce this week's guest akash singh a current fourth year phd candidate at duke university Akash's research is centered around perovskite materials with the goal of enabling next-generation solar cells, sensors, memory, and computing devices. Akash received his bachelor's in mechanical engineering from the Indian Institute of Information Technology, Jabalpur, and conducted his undergraduate thesis work at the Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore, or IISE. After his bachelor's, he extended his research on perovskite materials for another year at IISC before joining the PhD program at Duke. Akash, thanks so much for joining us today. We're super excited for for this discussion.
0: Well, thank you so much, Puneet and David, for having me here. It is such a pleasure and a big honor for me to be here on on this platform. And uh, kudos to you both for doing such an amazing job surpassing 100th episode for this Materials World podcast. Congratulations on that, and I'm excited to be here.
2: Awesome. Well, yeah, welcome, Akash. Uh, it, it sounds like you're doing some big stuff in the pervskite uh, space, but before we dive too deep in any specific innovation, could you quickly just describe what that class of material is and what makes them so desirable for solar cells?
0: Uh, well, yeah, great question. Pervskite is is a material that has in structure. It is Characteristically known through a structure of chemical with chemical composition of ABX three, where ABX are different elements from the periodic table, and these minerals have been discovered in eighteen thirty nine and in, in, in Russia. And since then, there has been significant interest in these class of materials. More interest have been recently grabbed in this area after nineteen seventy four, when these materials could be synthetically synthesized to get the best of the both worlds of the organics as well as inorganics as well as the synergistic effects that engenders from the combination of these two so these materials can be widely tuned because we can replace a b and x which are the primary structure ingredients for these materials and uh, we have infinite space of choosing from all the 114 elements from our periodic table, which can give rise to different functionality in these materials. These materials tends to show some unique properties as compared to other semiconductor materials. And uh, one of them is that uh, these are solution processable. So we, we can just dissolve some salts, precursor salts and can deposit it over any substrate using simple coating techniques like spray coating, spin coating, or you know even inkjet printing so that these materials can be printed over a large area with a very high throughput. As well as these materials, uh, as I told, it brings the best of the both worlds. So they tend to have a very unique behavior, which is known as defect tolerance. So For solar cell applications, most of the things that you see around in the market is based off silicon. And these are single crystalline silicon, which do not have grain boundaries, which are detrimental in its performance. In these materials, even if you have grain boundaries like polycrystalline material and not a single crystal wafer, these defects do not appear to degrade the performance of of the devices that, that are made out of it. So they can be easily processed. Third thing about exciting about these materials is that silicon, which is used in solar cell as much as abundant in the form of sand, it requires around 2000 degrees Celsius for its processing and sometimes in the clean room environment. Whereas these simple salts can be deposited with as less as 100 degrees Celsius of thermal energy input to get crystalline layers to work in as a solar cell absorber. Yeah. So, and these are very thin materials. So you can imagine making solar cells out of 600 nanometer to one micron whereas for silicon you require around 600 to 900 times more material uh, because silicon is an indirect band gap as much as we say silicon is a good solar cell but it is not a good light absorber so we require a thicker layer here we can do with few hundreds of nanometers so these things make them interesting apart from the other other properties that are also used in other applications which we can discuss
1: later. So I'm curious, you explained that the kind of form, the generic formula is ABX3. My understanding is, or I just wanted you to walk through what that structure looks like, you know, from from like the, the simple cell, or I guess what I remember is, you know, that ABX3, it's, it's kind of like there's a simple cell and then like a tetrahedron, like in the middle of it, and then like a, a center atom. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of walk through what the structure looks like for our audience and then how that leads to you know the, the potential benefits from the property side and the performance side
0: yes so for abx3 is a three dimensional framework of perovskites though they can also be made in two dimension and one dimension and that way their chemical formula will be different but for the three dimensional aspect a could be any monocation um how do i say yeah <laughs> cation and b is a divalent cation and x is a halogen anion and when these are mixed together, if they are in the perfect ratio, then the B and the X forms an octahedra. And these octahedras are connected in infinite space along XYZ direction. And with, when these octahedras are joined, it forms a cavity inside wherein the A cation sits. And that leads to different configuration of these materials. And depending upon the angles of these, of these arrangements, we can have different fundamental band gap of the material which gives its characteristic colors and as well as uh, different properties uh, depending upon what kind of cation or anion we are substituting in this perovskite moiety. The structure earlier, these were known, these minerals were called perovskites in the honor of Russian mineralogist Perovsky, who actually funded the crusade for for the trip to Russia. But after World War II, when people formed synthetic perovskite and not the original ABX3, which was calcium titanium oxide, Mm. They found out that even if you replace these elements, the structure remained the same. And since then, it was no more the mineral which was named as perovskite, but the characteristic ABX3
2: structure. So when we talk about solar cells, perhaps you could briefly talk about why this cavity and this ion in the middle is so preferable for solar cells. Uh, just like very briefly, like the energy of the sun can knock it out and then it will release energy as it finds another cavity. But maybe you could describe a little bit more about how this works to create like efficient solar cells or at least uh, solar cells that make like some amount of energy um, that's not negligible. Yes. Wonderful question. So
0: it's the cavity that holds the structure uh, if you put something in it through charge neutrality, because everything in the space has to be charge neutral for it to exist, if not plasma <laughs> So it's not exactly the role of the cavity. The role of the cavity is to hold some atoms or a small molecule, such that the structure could be held in its place. Regarding the other part of the question, which is why these are so desirable for photovoltaics, is because of two to three reasons. One, these are very these are direct band gap materials. That means you do not require thick layers, as I mentioned previously as opposed to silicon. So even very thin layers of the material can absorb more than 90% of the red incoming solar radiation because we want to maximize the absorption of the sunlight in the solar cell. Now, the second point is, is the defect tolerance. Even if these semiconductors absorb the light, which they then create electron and hole, hole pairs, which we isolate and conduct through external circuit, which produces the current, which we then use for our day-to-day application, In these semiconductors, these electron and hole pairs that are created, they are quite mobile. They do not get lost due to recombination. Before they can recombine non-radiatively, they can be extracted easily through an external circuit such that whatever photon created electron hole pair, we tend to get around 90 to 100% of, of the things that are created. So there's a term in in solar cell physics uh, called external quantum efficiency. So for these materials, the quantum efficiency is very high, even if the material deposited is not very uniform, like I talked about grain boundaries. And the third point is again related to the grain boundaries. They are very defect tolerant. Generally, suppose if in any crystal a particular atom is missing, that will create a void and some electrons and holes can get trapped in, in those states, whereas in these perovskite materials those trap states do not come in the band gap of the material they either exist within the valence band or in the conduction band that forms the band of the material which gives their respective colors like suppose a material is black so it has smaller band gap a material is orange it has a bit higher band gap and if a material is transparent it is it has even higher band gap so we ideally want black color so that means we we want the band gap to be low. So even if the band gap is low in these materials and there are some defects, these defects are not detrimental in the conduction pathway of these photo-generated charge carriers. And we can easily extract them out so that we can get efficient
1: solar cells. And I think we'll we'll dive into solar cells and the comparison with other kind of current technologies uh, later in the episode. But for now, I wanted to discuss some of the work that your lab is doing. I know that your lab is exploring glass forming perovskites versus the traditional crystalline form. So just wanted to get your your thoughts and what exactly makes a glassy perovskite special and unique compared to the traditional crystalline form? Thank you for asking something that I'm currently doing. So uh yes. It's very fresh to my knowledge. So
0: before we delve into like why it is special, I would just like to define this term, glassy. When we think about glass, we tend to look up at the buildings or the windows of our buildings and we see, okay, this is glass. Well, uh, glass is actually another metastable state of matter, the way at least I look at it. So we can imagine that in a crystalline materials, all the atoms are periodically repeated. And if you heat this crystalline material beyond a certain point known as the melting temperature, then it forms a liquid. And then when the liquid is cooled, it goes back to its crystalline form. The atoms move back to its home position. Now suppose if you have melted a material and then it is in the liquid state and you cool it in such a super fast manner that the atoms in the liquid do not get enough time to go back to their parent home position. That leads to the creation of a metastable state that we know as glass. Now, this metastable state glass is not a thermodynamically stable phase, but is still stable in, in the experimental time scale of our observation. And this glass has a structure which is similar to liquid, but physically it is quite similar to a solid. And this gives rise to multiple configuration arrangement as opposed to a very few available for the crystalline counterpart. And which engenders multiple functionality, like uh, in glassy materials, you do not have grain boundaries that are known to be detrimental for the application of solar cells, wherein the attacking molecules, the oxygen and the moisture permeates through inside the bulk and degrades the active absorber layer. In the glass, you do not have them, so you, you can make even more stable material, even as a barrier coating. The second thing, if you can make these materials in the glassy form, then you can think about drawing optical fibers out of it, which can be used in communication like transatlantic and transpacific communication without the requirement of multiple repeaters that we generally use currently. The third part is that these, when very high efficient devices have to be made, there is a term known as epitaxy, when one layer has to be in very intimate contact and all the atoms has to be in intimate contact without any dislocations. Glass are insensitive to these dislocations and grain boundaries. So you can have a perfect match when you make in heterostructures. Other than that, they also have like lower thermal conductivity. So you can envision using these materials as thermal barrier coating as opposed to crystalline materials and a multiple application as well. Like one of the interesting ones that I am trying to work on is you can also switch these materials from glassy to crystalline, and these two states shows different optoelectronic properties. And When you have two different properties within a single material that can be altered using some external stimuli, like electric current, like photo exposure, or even like thermal stimuli, then you can have two different states, and then you can think of switching between these states. So You have a switch which can potentially be used as a memory or for neuromorphic computing devices, which was not much
1: earlier accessible when we only talked about the crystalline states. Interesting. So I'm just curious then with the glassy state, you were talking about how it's kind of in a metastable nature, doesn't go exactly to that repeated pattern. Does that change like when you were talking about the the structure itself of like, you know, the octahedron, for instance, the octahedra, does that change at all with the glassy perovskite? How does that affect its its property or performance? That's a great question, actually.
0: So we have been investigating it over the last two years, and one of the experiments that I did at Oregon National Lab was with a beamline uh, beam experiments. Uh, we also call it a particle accelerator, just a fancy term for that. So using that, we probed into the structure of these molten and glassy materials, and we found out that the repetition of the octahedra in the infinite space is somewhat constricted, but they still maintain that octahedra though they connect loosely with one or two. So you can consider one octahedra as a monomer unit, or if two octahedras are connected, then it's a dimer unit. And up till this point, we have come to this conclusion that the connectivity has been reduced when it exists in the glassy phase, but it still maintains its octahedra nature. And that's why some of the properties are still preserved, but distinct from the crystalline counterpart. Like it shows different absorption spectra. As well as it shows a two order change in electrical conductivity. So when I say switch, so you can think of making even compact discs or DVD Blu-ray devices that we generally use in our, in our old computers. I don't think so. We use CDs, DVDs more because the SSDs are based on MOSFETs now. But if it can be electrically driven that Intel Optane, Intel Optane was launched in 2019, which used a calcogenide based Phase change memory device, which was electrically driven. These materials can also be envisioned to be used in that due to the change in property as a result of the change in the connectivity of these octahedra, which is the structure change.
2: You talk about all this progress, and there's been a huge jump of research in perovskites specifically recently. What specifically do you think is driving such interest in this new field of materials? Climate change. One is climate change,
0: and second. Uh, there is a great push from the government as well as different organization to reduce the carbon footprint as well as develop alternative technologies, alternative renewable technologies such so that we can minimize our reliance on the fossil fuels. And one of the great impetus is, is that the second one, the accelerated materials discovery, even using the artificial intelligence and the wide scope availability of the literature you, because of the, internet. And so if you see from silicon, silicon solar cell were made in, if I'm not wrong, maybe Bell Labs, and it took around 60, 70 years to come up to this point with efficiency of around 26% in the lab. With perovskite, it was 3.8% in 2009, and now it has reached around 25.4 in just a span of 15 years. So a lot of people have started to research. uh, A lot of information is available on the internet. A lot of new technologies has come into existence, including fabrication, synthesis, as well as characterization techniques. As And a major impetus is definitely the government and the organization and uh, towards the common goal of making a carbon free world in the future. These are the things. And also these are very interesting class of materials because they have both organic and inorganic. So as a from a curiosity point of view, people want to study these hybrid systems that has led to the observation of some
1: properties that find, that ultimately found its application in these fields. I know one of the patterns we've seen in, in our episodes is there's an existing technology that's had decades and decades of just being able to optimize the manufacturing process. And then there's a new technology that it's very much in the early stages but there's a lot of potential for it and it seems to be the case here so i was wondering if you can kind of talk us through that comparison between perovskite based solar cells for example or products in general versus like the silicon solar cells you've talked about the efficiency currently i believe it you said 26 percent versus 25.4 percent as it is today what about like the cost differences or manufacturability and, and scalability for perovskites versus silicon solar cells yeah so regarding the so there are three points for the cost uh,
0: there's something known as levelized cost of energy and which is a normalized way of understanding what is the end result like how much energy are we producing at the expense of the dollars that we are spending on it so if i can remember correctly and if my numbers are good i think for the silicon it was around 35 cents per watt for the perovskite it is around 17 cents per watt but it is envisioned to go as low as seven cents per watt and regarding the manufacturability of these materials so as i said these are solution processable so you can imagine having a spray can and just spraying it over a window putting some you know like electrodes or wire in the future also like i have been working on this spray coating projects in my undergrad and showed success to to a good extent so as I also mentioned previously that you can print these materials with the speed of newspapers and you know the speed with which newspapers are printed and the area that which, uh, on which it is printed. So there is definitely a benefit on that. The climate, the change regarding the climate, the footprint that silicon takes to produce and the ecotoxicity is quite high because of the thermal requirement, 2000 degrees Celsius, as opposed to these solution processable materials. Requires as less than as 100 degrees C. Some reports have even developed these materials to be deposited at room temperature in 2017. And uh, the third part. Uh, so for the silicon solar cells, we generally tend to make uh, an ignot, a big cylindrical single crystal, and then we slice those single crystals uh, in different segments with a cross section of around few hundred microns to a millimeter, and then those different wafers are connected with each other, with different layers on it to make a panel. With perovskite, you can have a monolithic integration that doesn't require you making individual cells and connecting them to form a module. You can have one complete surface covered by it and you can make solar cells out, out of it. And uh, if you think about uh, perovskite, there is an uh, anecdote told by Sam Stranks from University of Cambridge. If you Imagine a Olympic-sized swimming pool and you Uh, use the precursor ink like solution processable because these are solution processable materials and you barely fill half of that swimming pool and the ink that is there it can coat if you coat it over substrate it can power all of California so there is a very high high potential and throughput for these materials compared to silicon while being done at a very fast
2: pace. So how easy is it to combine and Almost like embed in, in other things, like like you said, like uh, you, you can make it solution soluble, but how compatible is it if we want to put it on glass or other substrates that we use for buildings or combine it with other technologies that we already have? Is it very easy to combine it with uh, infrastructure to uh, be able to take advantage of things that are in the sun all day? or um, will have to be like a standalone, like a solar panel, where you do have to have some infrastructure specifically just to hold it. That's a great point. And a lot of work has currently being
0: done uh, in this regard, especially related to tandem solar cells, but uh, you can think of them as a standalone technique as as, as well, because these are thin materials, so you can envision printing them over a flexible substrate. So that you can roll these devices and can spread it out open in the sun and can harness the energy. So you can think of this as a standalone, flexible solar cell technology as well. But other thing regarding the compatibility, because these are hybrid materials, so it's easier for them to stick to an organic surface as well as to an inorganic surface. And uh, there have been reports of these coatings being developed on almost all the surface, including a surfactant bubble that was shown a few years back so i don't think so there are any compatibility issue with its coating on different surface and if there are there are different surface enrichment techniques uh, that can change the surface energy of the substrate and then you can coat even philic or phobic materials on those substrates regarding tandem if you think about the existing infrastructure silicon solar cells are already existing in the market and there have been a great impetus of using perovskite as an additional solar coating for wide band gap solar cell, solar coating on these materials using the existing infrastructure at a fraction of cost to extract even more energy out of it. Like I think the recent record is around 32% as opposed to a single junction solar cell for silicon, which is 26. So, and Oxford PV is a big player in this market that is currently trying to do that. So yes, I, I can see them existing as a standalone uh, technology, as well as uh, quite integrable with the existing infrastructure. Also in IoT devices, they're small, because these are highly efficient materials so and very light. So you can imagine your smartwatch or any wearables being powered by that, even in ambient lighting conditions.
2: So it seems that solar cells take a lot of the interest and in the attention-grabbing applications of perovskites especially the push for green energy and other products as we try to combat climate change. However, after talking to you, it seems like this might overshadow some other exciting applications of this material class. Uh, Maybe you can dive into what other applications we can use these for and uh, what excites you the most out of these. What excites me the most is just working with them, honestly,
0: (laughs) Uh, because the curiosity and the fundamental properties, investigating those fundamental properties and relating it with the structure takes the biscuit for me. But there are multiple other applications that these materials are used in, I think, in mostly all the application fields. As you know, for a semiconductor, a good absorber is also a good emitter. So LED devices are currently being made out of these materials. Which silicon cannot be used because it cannot emit light because it is an indirect material. Whereas these materials are direct, so it can emit photons instead of just heat. And because these are wide, widely tunable, so you can tune their band gap all the way from infrared to UV. So you can imagine having all different color gamuts from compositionally tuned perovskite films. So you can have green LEDs, blue LEDs, red LEDs, infrared LEDs, or UV LEDs made out of that. Apart from that, these these are also used as sensors. One of the most exciting applications is its use in detection of X-rays and gamma rays. And uh, that is currently taking a lot of uh, interest in the perovskite community. And people have also made tr- transistors out of it, diodes out of it, lasers out of it. And uh, with the advent of this glassy materials, glassy perovskite, I envision that their application space will be broadened to an extent where these can be efficiently incorporated or perhaps be individually used uh, as in a standalone format as uh, memory devices, neuromorphic computing devices, metamaterials, photonic devices, because the very fundamental property of the switching between glassy and crystalline opens many doors of possibility for these materials. And uh, since its discovery in 1839 up till now, A lot has been done though a big progress has been made in the last 15 years in the next 15 years this mineral will complete its two journey two century journey and i i I think that it's
1: a very bright future for this family of materials it's interesting to see how the variability in like the structure affects its potential applications you mentioned like the switch and this was, you know, way back in, in freshman year, but I worked with like anti-perovskite materials, which I guess is like X3BA instead of ABX3. Something something like that, but it was like a lithium-based anti-perovskite material for battery applications. Um and so I the, the question for you would just be how much variability potential is there with this this class of materials and do you think that will lead to even a wider range of applications in the future, in the next 10, 15 years? I would say infinite, and uh, it's not far-fetched
0: because uh, if you do the permutation combination of the existing elemental space in the periodic table, you can create a lot of possibilities uh, and tune these compositions accordingly, and which will result into a changing structure, which will then engender different properties, which in turn can be used for different applications. Up till now the focus is driven in terms of solar cells, emitters, and sensors. But as like we we discovered the glassy perovskite out of a mere serendipity, we were trying to measure the photoluminescence of these materials and their melting properties. And when we actually melted it, it never recrystallized. Before we did not know that it even exists, and there could be switching phenomena that could occur in these materials, which just happened like two years back. So there's still a ground of new possibilities. We are just still waiting for some of those discoveries to be made. And given the memotic tunability and compositional space to choose from, I think there are still a few strides for this material to make its mark into. Like earlier, if you talk about uh, semiconductors to exist, you need a crystalline framework in 1968 stanford rofscinski demonstrated that semiconductor nature can still exist in the material even there is no periodicity which also in part led to a nobel prize in 1970s and so for these perovskite it was always the, it was the structure so when a material is is defined by structure that means it's crystalline mostly so there was no possibility even for it to be understood to exist in a glassy framework but now it is so you never know <laughs> And as more people like us start to work in the material science, we definitely see more progress in this domain. And which also encourages me to talk about these two people in the material science community.
1: Sure. That's why I wanted to ask you about what you first see like in terms of timelines for for like mass scale, let's say commercialization of perovskite solar cells and, and the implementation, you know, what are like the current companies working on today? And what does that timeline look like to see this? Because it seems like there's a lot of potential applications, but we're not quite there yet in terms of, I guess, mass scale production, right, with this, with this perovskite material. So I just wanted to get your opinion on what the future looks like for the space in the next five to 10 years.
0: So currently we have around new startups are growing, growing and around all over the world, there are around 90 startups with around 29 in America, as well as two in my home country back in India. And these involves not only those uh, which work with Perovsky solar cell fabrication, but also involve the ones that provides materials for its production, provide services for its production, as well as the one that develops the panel, the ones that provide equipments for them to be produced, and as well as other sectors, which work on exploring different applications apart from the photovoltaics. Currently, there are a few big players to name, like Oxford PV, Cubic PV, Soil Technologies, Bus Solars, Great great Cell Solar, that are there and contribute to the most uh, Market share currently in all over the globe. So, according to an analysis done by DataBridge in 2020 or 2021, it was estimated around $0.17 billion market in 2021 and is projected to go to around $6.6 billion by 2029. And uh, the reason we are not able to see these solar panels in the market, no matter how much I incentivize or talk good about these materials is because they're still in that development state, but a lot of solar panels have come out recently. Even last week, I I read there's a panel of two meter by one meter of 320 watt capacity that came out, I think, from an East Asian country and different companies that I mentioned, those players are also working towards it. So I expect us to see these Solar cells in the market within the next five years, mo- most definitely, not being optimistic, but most definitely, and as well as in space, which they are currently being researched in.
2: Well, yeah, maybe taking a slight detour from your very technical side, we just wanted to ask you about how you founded Dukes University's Materials Research Society chapter MRS. Uh, we touched on this several episodes ago, but could you briefly describe what MRS is? And then, why you saw the need to create this organization and what made you interested in spending even more time doing things uh, at Duke? Duke is a great
0: place, and uh, especially its material science program is a bit unconventional, I feel, in my own personal opinion. Rather than having a dedicated department of material science, they have a university program in material science and engineering that takes students from all the nine departments at Duke, including the natural sciences as well as engineering and environment. So people working in all these respective departments can be affiliated with the university program in material science to continue their research because materials is ubiquitous. No matter whichever field you go, you have to deal with these tangible matter at hand. And uh, there is professor, like uh, a body of the professors here at Duke called Duke Materials Initiative, which currently includes around 62 professors from these nine departments. But there was no such organization that was student-driven. And there was a gap between the communication, between the faculty-led organization and the student-led organization. So during the COVID times, there was not much to do socially. So Uh, me, uh, I and uh, the DGS, Professor Adrian Steph robert amazing professor and the Director of Graduate Studies Program in Material Science, we talked about it. And there was uh, also a push from the department to uh, create such a organization. And we talked about it and uh, I started recruiting members because I felt there's a disconnect between the students and there could be better discussion between the faculty as well as the students across these nine different departments. And there would be interdisciplinary as well as multidisciplinary discussion that could be engendered through it. So we formed it, uh, talked to the headquarter and uh, eventually people were interested in it. And currently we have around 160 members
1: across the Ucap and hopefully they'll grow more. <laughs> That's so awesome. It, it's interesting. I it just resonated with me when you were talking about like the COVID times, not much else to do. Like that was a similar story with the podcast. This podcast. So I'm glad that the MRS chapter at Duke is continuing to grow, and it seems like you really enjoy your time there. My brother, my little brother, goes to Duke, so. Oh, yeah, and right. I'm, I'm, fr- I'm from North Carolina. So it's good to hear that you're enjoying it because that means that there's a good chance he'll enjoy it too. <laughs> First of all, thank you for, for this discussion and really wrap up with getting your advice on something that I think you have unique experience in. So as a PhD student, we want to talk on the publication process specifically. So we've seen that you you've authored several papers being, you're the first author on on multiple research papers, but I believe you're also a reviewer for a variety of journals. So since you see both sides of the publishing process, what advice would you give to students who want to improve the quality and impact of their scientific writing? I think there are a few points that, uh, that can be kept in mind. One,
0: when you want to write about something, that means you want to do two things. One, to enhance the repository of the knowledge in the in the scientific community, and second, to communicate it better so that it is readily available to other people as well. When you want to write journal paper, you, one should always keep in mind what is the punchline, what is the main message that you want to deliver, the major findings. One, as long as you stick with it, it's great. The second point is sometimes we get lost in doing experiments that we deviate from the major focus, and it gets hard for people to, you know, like wrap up the work and to communicate it to a point where it, it is itself, uh, self existing in itself. So, I would say not to overkill if something is not working, we have to find quickly move into different ways of figuring it out together so that it can be written quickly and communicated. Third thing is, people tend to be very liberal with writing, so they including myself. I'm talking about me. So I would just write a few lines, which are just hypothesis and are not backed up by references or scientific concepts or the experimental evidence. So I tend to now avoid writing anything which does not give a clear-cut message because as a reviewer also, I find that when you write something and which is not backed up, then you invite more questions from the reviewers, which make the reviewing process more difficult, as well as more time-consuming so that your communication is not communicated in a timely fashion. That's the other thing. And if you really want to write and communicate fast, I think you should have a set of figures in your mind. So envision them here. What are the figures that you want to do and, ex- and chart your story around it uh, while keeping the punchline and the major message of your paper in your mind and just navigate through it, create a good flow of logic rather than having jumpy paragraphs. I have I have struggled about it and I have, I'm have i still in the learning phase, but these are the <laughs> things I, I find out that has helped me publish whatever I have published so far.
1: I love that. Well, thank you so much, Akash, for joining us for this discussion and sharing all the valuable advice you have, as well as an overview of the perovskite space. I'm excited to see this field continue to grow and I just wanted to express that gratitude and appreciation for you sharing all of your insights uh, with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, The pleasure is all mine, Puneet and David. I feel more
0: honored to be here in this podcast series. I think it is one of a kind. And uh, i very delightful to uh, share my views about this technology as well as getting a chance to talk to you both, who have definitely knowledge about all the different kind of material segments since you have been doing it, and I think it's more than 100 episodes. So (laughs) thank you so much for having me here. And I wish to continue to have further
1: conversation and communication in the near future. Of course. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.